Let's pray. Father, we come again this morning and this time of week set aside to gather corporately and, and open the word together to bring us as a body to that one place, one understanding, one reminder of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, as we go about our business Monday through Saturday, we walk through this world and, and pick up barnacles, as it were, the barnacles of sin that so easily attach to us. And so as we come here and are reminded of who you are and what you have done in Christ for us and who we are in Christ, the hull gets scraped clean. We are renewed in our inner man with vigor and purpose and and strength and courage to go back out into the world and be that, uh, that light that you have called us to be wherever you have placed us, Father. And we're grateful for that privilege together and pray now as we open the word that your spirit would make it applicable and impress upon our hearts the truth of it all. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well. Open your Bibles up to the sixth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And we are looking at the next section of what's called the, known as the household code. This section of Paul's letter here to the Ephesians where he deals with the three primary relationships uh, within the, the, a household of the first century. And so he deals with the husband-wife relationship. He deals next with the parent-child relationship. And here in verses 5 through 9, he deals with the master-slave relationship. And so let me just read that for you, and then I want to make a few uh, comments to it, and then this will probably this morning be actually all we're going to deal with here in Ephesians 6 because there's some other things that I need to talk to you about to kind of set the stage to really unpacking this passage. But let's just go ahead and read it so that we might have remember where we are. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay, so this is the third group that would be found within that household of the first century, the master-slave relationship. And you will certainly remember that this entire section, this household code, grows out of Paul's words in chapter 5 towards the end in verse 15 where he talks about how to live wisely as new creations in Christ. And in particular, verse 18, where he talks about being filled by the Spirit and bringing our life under the Spirit's control. And then he spells it out. In fact, verse 21, he talks about being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he spells out what that means in these three relationships. Husband, wife, parent, child, slave, and master. 
Now, that kind of launches us into a really interesting discussion and phenomena, and that is slavery in the Bible. And many teachers will immediately sort of pass that over and go right to what they would call employer-employee relationship and just sort of teach the passage that way. And, and I completely understand why they do that, and, and ultimately I'm going to do that as well. I'm going to make application from this passage to the situation, the economic situation we find ourselves in, which is typically employee-employer, but before we do that, I think it's necessary and indeed helpful to at least spend a little time and talk about slavery and the Bible. Now, here, just observationally, I'm just going to give this to you. You file it away. Maybe you kind of think on it this week a little bit. But, but here, observationally, there's something important that stands out from this section of the text. And what stands out here is that Paul does not provide a theological foundation for slavery. When he deals with husbands and wives, he roots it in the creation ordinance itself. Right? You'll see that. Verse 31 is explicit out of Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He he relates it to the... the, the, um, Husband loving his, his wife as Christ loved the church. Wives be submissive to your husbands as the church is to Christ and so forth. So it's, it's very theologically rooted. And what that means is it's, it's transcendental. In other words, it goes across all uh, period of time in human history. It relates to all marriages. All marriages are to be conducted according to Paul's teaching here because it's rooted in the creation itself. When it gets to the, to the parent-child relationship, he, he roots it here in the, in the Ten Commandments, right? He roots it in the commandments. And so, it, again, it is theologically rooted. In other words, it, it creates obligations and responsibilities that transcend time, culture, and all of the various aspects of that. But here, in the, in the master-slave relationship, and indeed in all of the New Testament passages of master-slave, slavery is never rooted theologically. It is never justified theologically. And that's an important uh, observation to make, I think, because we're going to talk about slavery, and the Bible is going to regulate slavery, and it's going to prescribe the ways for slaves, to, that, uh, how a Christian slave is supposed to operate, and it's going to talk about how a Christian master is to operate, and so forth. But it does not provide the theological foundation or lift for slavery. Okay? So file that away. The Bible says, people will ask me, well, how come the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery? Why don't, why don't they just come out and condemn it and just say that it's evil? Because it is. We'll get to that. Okay? Hang on to that question. We will get to it, but not this morning. All right. I'm done with Ephesians 6 for the morning. Okay? But I'm not ready to sit down. Because I, I do want to address the topic of slavery with you this morning. This cannot be comprehensive. I do not have enough time, nor do I have enough understanding of the topic myself to in any way say that that this is going to be comprehensive. But I have spent some time with it, and I think there's some important observations and understandings that we need to have in our 
in our minds as we come back to this topic here in Ephesians 6, okay? So basically what we've got this morning is a very extended introduction to Ephesians 6. We're not going to even get beyond that introduction this morning, okay? But it'll be profitable to you, I promise. Now, slavery. Slavery has been a part of the human experience for millennia. It is part of the human experience, and it has been for thousands of years. It is one expression of the darkness and wickedness of the human heart. It manifests itself in one human enslaving another. Now, our own nation has a very uh, dark history with slavery, African slavery. And that wicked period in, our, in the history of the United States was really only ended by an incredible bloodbath. It, it was washed from this nation at the cost of the lives of 620,000 men and boys at a time when this nation had a much smaller population than it does today. So, so understand this, there was virtually no part of this nation unscathed by the bloodbath that brought the end to African slavery in America. It is a very dark chapter in our history. But as we come now to ancient slavery, and that's where I want to go with you, we come to ancient slavery. It's, it's different than African slavery in American history of the 19th century. And so I want to educate you and, and um, examine with you what the Word of God has to say about Slavery in a time and in a day and an age that is far removed from anything we know, anything we have any experience with, anything that any of our ancestors have any experience with. So let me begin with what I'm calling slavery in the ancient world. Okay? Slavery in the ancient world. In antiquity, most slaves were brought into slavery by one of four means, principally. Right? One of four ways a person became a slave. Number one, it was by being a prisoner of war. By being a prisoner of war. If you were captured in war, you became a slave. Okay? So you entered into slavery by being captive in war. Secondly, the second way you were brought into slavery, and most people brought into slavery, is that you were born into slavery. You were born to slave parents, and thus you yourself were a slave. The third common way in which one entered into slavery was that you were sold into slavery to pay off a debt to pay off a financial obligation. It might be your obligation, and you might sell yourself into slavery, or you might actually sell your children into slavery to retire a debt. But that is another means and mechanism by which 
In antiquity, people entered into slavery. It was to pay off a debt. The fourth way that people entered into slavery is that they were kidnapped by slave traders. Okay, they were kidnapped by slave traders. Now, I want to talk to you about this in just a little bit more here in a minute, but I want you to know that, that the first three means, prisoner of war, born into slavery, or sold to pay off a debt, are not condemned in the Old Testament. Those three means are not condemned. They are regulated. They are not condemned. This fourth means was severely condemned in both Old and New Testament, okay? So being kidnapped into slavery by slave traders, which is the origin of African slavery in America, is very severely criticized by God, condemned by God. So I want you to go with me in the Old Testament and go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24. We're going we're gonna to be here in the Old Testament for a little while, okay? So limber up those pages, okay? We'll be primarily in Exodus and Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 24 and verse 7, Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, if a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from among you. Also Exodus 21, Exodus 21 and verse 16 Exodus 21, 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Hang on to that thought and then roll with me to the New Testament, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, pick it up in verse 8 for context. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers, literally men-stealers, and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Okay, so Paul includes in the category here of the, of the despicable wickedness of humanity that of kidnapping or stealing men for the purpose of enslaving them. All right, so you know the mind of God with regard to this. In the Old Testament, it was the death penalty, and in the New Testament, it's, it's severely condemned. Okay, so that kind of slavery, although it was practiced, was very much an abomination to God. Now, back again to your Old Testament. And let's talk a little bit about slavery in Israelite society. Now, remember, we're talking almost 3,500 years ago. Okay, so we are talking a long time ago in a land far, far away. All right? This is beyond our experience. We don't know anything about this from any kind of personal experience. And it's easy to, to come to the text with our highfalutin ideas and, and look down on what has gone before us. But 
be very careful. He who lives in glass houses should not throw stones, okay? And there is much in our society that is very enslaving, if one takes a little time to think about it. But that's another sermon, another time. So let's talk about slavery in Israelite society. This world, 3,500 years ago, was a brutal place. Newsflash, still is. It was a brutal world, and yet compassion was to be the ruling virtue of Israelite society. In a very, very brutal world, compassion was to be the ruling virtue, and it was buttressed by the command of Yahweh to Israel to never forget that they were once slaves themselves. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Now, you remember Exodus 20 is where we find the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments act as a, a foyer, an entranceway into the entire Mosaic law. And so what I want you to see is how it is all preferenced, how the, the law of God is prefaced here, and it is prefaced by a compassion that is rooted in the reality that Israel was to never, ever, 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 ever forget that they once were slaves themselves. Verse 1, chapter 20 of Exodus. And then, then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he will say that to them over and over and over again. Okay? Now, with that reality, recognizing that they, they lived in a, in a world of slavery, in which people were brought into slavery according to those means and methods that I spoke of here just a couple of minutes ago, let's make some observations. Okay? Observations that, that buttress the reality that God wanted the nation to deal compassionately with slaves. That compassion was the, was the ruling foundational motif of how they were interact in their time, in their culture, in their place with the topic of slavery. So, Exodus 21, verse 32. If the ox gores a man, excuse me, a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and then the ox shall be stoned. Here's what I want to do with this. I just want to lift out this reality for you. Slaves had a specific market value, 30 shekels of silver. 30 shekels of silver. So, so what? Well, so this. What that meant then, as a slave, you knew what you were worth. If you were to sell yourself into slavery, you knew what you could expect. If you were to redeem yourself from slavery, you knew what you had to pay. So you were not subject to, to market conditions, supply and demand, or, or someone who was just unreasonable to let you go. Your value was fixed. Okay? It was fixed. Now, just, 
You can mark this down, check it out on your own. Someone may think of this, but over in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 3, it talks there about one who makes a vow and it has various fixed values associated with the vow, and it, and it speaks of a, of a free Israelite male at 50 shekels, and, and all that's about is, hey, if you, know, you want to make a vow to commit yourself to the permanent service of the Lord as a free will offering, what that said is, this is how much money that equated to. And so you, you would give that financial gift in lieu of your own life, okay? And it was a voluntary gift that you would make. So it's really not the same subject. But with regard to a slave, here's the important point. Your value's fixed, and it's fixed at a, at a, sum, a certain sum of silver, okay? A certain sum of silver. So that gave you a constant market value, which was to your benefit. It was to your benefit, now, as a slave in Hebrew society, you could be beaten. You could be beaten, but you could not be killed. But you could not be killed. So Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he, that is a man who struck him, shall be punished. If, however, he, that is the slave, survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken for he his his property, okay? So, as a master in Israelite society, you could not kill your slaves. That is very different from the rest of the ancient world, okay? You could punish them corporally, but you could not kill them. You could not kill them. Why? Because they bear the image of God. They bear the image of God. Beyond that, slide over a little further in the chapter here, verses 26 and 27, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. So, you could beat your slave in, in the sense that you could, you, could, you could bring to bear corporal punishment, but you could not kill them, nor could you permanently injure them or maim them. Beyond that, and, and I believe that this is, this is um, the eye and the tooth here stand in for, for a bigger body of information, um, both eye and tooth are things that you lose with age. Okay? They just kind of go away with age. But, but, they, but they stand in for all the other body parts here that, are, that have lesser dignity than an eye or a tooth. And so what Moses is regulating here, what God is regulating through Moses, and again, is an act of compassion, is that if you somehow permanently injure your slave, you even knock out their tooth, they go free. They go free, okay? So when we hear the terminology about they may beat them, okay, we should, we should not understand it as if, you know, they're going to beat them within an inch of their life sort of thing. Because if they even knock out their tooth, they go free. They go free, okay? So... You cannot permanently, you cannot kill your slave, you cannot permanently injure your slave. Third, Exodus 23, verse 12. Slaves were mandated to enjoy a Sabbath rest. Okay, 23, 12. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. 
and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Now think with me for a minute, where in the world do slaves get a day off a week? They get a day off in a, in a society that is, to be, that is to be rooted and grounded in compassion. So here God builds in the Sabbath rest, not just for the freeborn, but for the slave. Okay? For the slave. Now, some Hebrews, some, some Jews would find themselves in, in such precarious financial position that they believed they had no choice, and, and indeed they probably had no choice, but to sell themselves into slavery to, to serve the person they owed the money to. Okay? They were slaves because they owed a debt they could not pay. But interesting here, and I'm still in Exodus 21. Well, I'm back to Exodus 21 at least. If you sold yourself into slavery, in order to extinguish a debt, you were to be treated as a hired hand, as a hired worker. You would have regular Sabbath rest. You could not be abused by the person that you had been sold, you know, you sold yourself into. And you were provided with a regular and predictable emancipation. In other words, that this was only for a period of time and then it would be over for you. Right? And it was limited to six years. So, chapter 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave... He shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is of the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master... And my, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. In other words, it was six years. You would serve six years, your debt is extinguished. If at the end of six years you say, you know what? This is a pretty good arrangement. I think I want to stay. Then at that point in time, you are brought before the Lord to be determined that this is a voluntary decision on your part, and then there would be a mark made that would signify this reality that you had now committed yourself permanently into the service and care of your master. Okay? Now, roll over to Deuteronomy 15 because it gets even better. You have to put these passages together. But over in Deuteronomy 15... Verse 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years. But in the seventh year, he shall be set free. Okay, so far so good. Right? But here, look at this. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. 
You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. There it is again. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. It shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. It shall not seem hard to you when you set him free, for he has given you six years with double the service of a hired man. So the Lord your God will bless you in whatever you do. Now, double the service of a hired man, we're not sure exactly what that means. Perhaps it's just a reference to the 24-7 service that a slave would provide versus someone that you merely hired from sunup to sundown. Okay? Possible. But here's the point. At the end of the six years, the debt is extinguished. The man goes free. But when he goes free, you have to set him up financially so that he can get a start again in life. Otherwise, what's going to happen to him? He's going to end up right back in the same predicament. You're going to set him free. He's a free man, but he's got nothing, and he's going to immediately end up in the same kind of predicament that put him into slavery in the first place. So you are giving him, your compassion is, not only is the debt extinguished in exchange for his service, but you now charitably, generously give to this man and give him another start in life. Okay, That is way different Way different than how any other nation treated their slaves of the ancient world. Okay? When you're done working here, we're going to set you up in life. Okay? You got a pension of sorts. So, in ancient Israel, God did not abolish slavery, but he very carefully regulated it in order to, uh, to prevent its worst abuses. This sets the nation of Israel, Israel wondrously apart from all the other nations of the ancient world. And I want to, I want to take you to Deuteronomy 4, and I want to show you something in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And in fact, if you've got a highlighter or a pencil or, or you mark your Bibles, this is a passage you ought to mark. This is a really important interpretive key to Old Testament law. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 5 and running through verse 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking, right? He's in the plains of Moab at the end of the 40-year wandering. They're ready to enter into the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go with them. He's giving them the second giving of the law here to that new generation. And this is what he says to them. I have taught you, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land which you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Answer, none. None. 
Okay, so what is Moses saying here? What Moses is saying is, and, and what applicationally, what we can, can take from what he's saying here is, is that when we come to the law of Moses and we read it, and it's mysterious to us, it's, it's unfamiliar, it seems at times even offensive to us with our modern sensibilities, we need to understand this, that in its day, in the world in which this nation was birthed, the law of Moses made them stand out like a, like a city on a hill, like a, like a light not to be hidden under a basket, that all the nations would see and would recognize that their God was the real one true God, and this people was a righteous people with a law that cared for and considered humanity in a way unheard of, unprecedented in the world. Okay? So, mark it down as a hermeneutical principle, a principle of, of understanding the law. As you're reading the law, ask yourself this question. What is it about this that I am reading that would stand out in its day and would make people conclude from this, what a great God you serve. What a great God you serve. And I would just say as an aside, when you come to the New Testament... And there are passages in the New Testament that, uh, that offend your sensibilities, your modern sensibilities. That before we quickly judge the Word of God and condemn it as being patriarchal or misogynist or old-fashioned or holding values that, are, that, are, that obvious moderns know are ridiculous, we ought to approach it in the same fear, trembling, and reverence, and that is this is the Word of the living God. And it is not God who is out of line. It is our society that is out of line. And we need to understand the heart of God in these things and then make a proper application, okay? So slavery in ancient Israel is, is uh, dominated by compassion. That's your takeaway thought. It is dominated by compassion because your God is a compassionate God. Now let's roll to the New Testament. Slavery in the Roman Empire. Okay, slavery in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was deeply dependent upon slaves. There have only really been a few societies throughout history that, that one could say were truly slave societies. In other words, their whole economic system was built on slavery. Rome was one of them. Rome was one of them. It is estimated that as many as 15% of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Okay? 15% of the population were slaves. In the large cities, that number could be as high as 30%. Nearly one in three were slaves. That means, by the way, a little aside here, that means when, because the New Testament church was primi primarily planted in cities, right? You follow Paul's missionary journeys. He, goes, he skips some places and goes to others. He goes to the big cities. And as he goes into the big cities, understand this, that at least a third of the people he's talking to are slaves. Therefore, the makeup of the early church was heavily slave-oriented. Now, by the end of, of Rome's wars of conquest, by which she captured many, many slaves, so by the time the empire had spread out 
Okay? They're no longer slaves were primarily not brought in any longer by becoming military captives. They were brought in by being born in slavery. They were bred, as it were. Okay? So that's how Rome maintained its slave population was through live births. Now, the slaves who lived in the big cities or lived on the large farms or estates of the very wealthy occupied virtually every station in life. Okay? They were such as they were cooks, they were cleaners, they were personal attendants, they were tutors, they were physicians, they were nurses, household managers, janitors, delivery boys, managers of estates, shops, and ships, as well as salesmen, contracting agents, and civil servants. In other words, that slavery went all through the empire at all the various employable, as it were, areas of the empire, okay? So you would find slaves everywhere. Everywhere. You could be a freeborn man and end up working for a slave. Other slaves, those that were, that were still generally came into slavery by being taken as prisoners of war, went to the Colosseum. Okay? So if you fought against Rome, your fate was the Colosseum or the mines. You would be sent to the mines, and in both cases, that was the equivalent of a death sentence. Okay? So if you raised arms, you, know, you took up arms against Rome, you would be enslaved, and you would either go into the Colosseum, or you would go off to the mines. All right? But if other than that, then you could occupy all kinds of strata of society. You might be the guy who teaches your master's kids as their tutor. Or you might be the physician that took care of your master's health. Now, Roman law was very explicit about how the slave structure was to operate. And so let me give you a little of that here. Uh, a slave in, in Rome was considered property. They were considered property, and thus they could not contract a legal marriage. In other words, you could not get married legally as a slave without the permission of your master. The standard Latin term for a farm slave was instrumentum vocalis, which would translate as a talking tool. Okay? That would be referred to as a talking tool. A slave could not represent themselves in a court of law. So they could not go into a court of law and represent themselves. A slave could not inherit. A slave could not inherit. And if, as a slave, you were convicted of a crime, you would generally be subjected to a much more severe punishment than your owner would be for the identical crime. On the other hand, on the other hand, Life for a freeborn peasant was a very difficult hand-to-mouth existence. Okay? If you were a freeborn peasant, it was a hard way of life. 
you lacked economic security. There were no safety nets. Okay? But as a slave, you would be provided with food, clothing, shelter. Okay? And, and again, we need to put ourselves into that day and age where understand that if, if you might be free, but you could starve to death as a free person. And many did. Additionally, uh, you know, there were many things slaves could not do, but additionally, there were things they could do. A slave could earn money. A slave could earn money through a side job. A slave could own property. A slave could even own other slaves. If they had adequate resources, they could, they could buy their freedom. And many city slaves were emancipated by their masters. Talk a little more about that in a minute. And if their master was a freeborn citizen, then the slave's children would, would be granted the status of, of Roman citizenship themselves. Okay? So if your master was a freeborn Roman citizen and he emancipated you, you would not become a freeborn or, or be a, a Roman citizen, but your child would become a Roman citizen okay? with all of the attendant privileges and, and protections that Roman citizenship provided. Okay? Furthermore, because slavery was not ethnically based it would be nearly impossible to determine a person's legal or social status by merely looking at them, by their appearance, by how they dressed, by the color of their skin, by any of these kinds of things. You could not tell. All right? Now, do a little more here with what's called manumission. That's the, that's the freeing of a slave. And this was also uh, woven into the, Ro into the Roman system. If you were a city slave, you could generally count on being freed by around the age of 30. Okay, so sometime around the age of 30, if you were, you know, kind of born into the system, by around the age of 30, you could generally count, if you were a city slave, on being um, emancipated, okay? If you were a farm slave, you were generally a slave the rest of your life. So this was sort of a city slave privilege. It was not uncommon for a wealthy slave owner upon his death to provide in his will for the release of a large portion, sometimes all, of his household slaves when he died. Beyond that, a slave could purchase their own freedom, as I said, through the accumulation of earnings from a side business. So you could have a side business. Some slaves were well-treated, and some were abused. Some were well-treated, some were abused. Go with me to 1 Peter 2. Another slave passage where Peter picks up the question of the abused slave. First Peter 2, verses 18. Servants, slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up unto sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? 
But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So there, certainly within the Roman slave system, you might be well treated and you might not be. So, despite the, the economic and social stability that this system that had been going on for centuries provided, it was still ultimately based upon the threats of violence and coercion. Okay? And all slavery, at its core, I think, inhabits that reality that it uses violence and coercion to keep it all together. Even the first century Roman philosopher Seneca recognized that at the core of slavery was violence and coercion, and he implored his, his fellow slave owners to control their anger, okay, to control their anger. Do not abuse your slaves. Common ways that slaves were conversed included threatened beaten, beatings, sexual harassment, or probably the worst, and that is if you were a male slave, they would sell you away from the household and thus tear you from your wife and your children and you would never see them again. Okay? So that's how they were kept in line. Think about Paul's words in Ephesians 6 to masters, right? Give up threatening. Give up threatening. We'll come to that. So, this is the social political, economic environment that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came into to set people free, to set people free. Not free from their physical slavery, but free from something much greater, much deeper, darker, harsher, and crueler, and that is slavery to sin. Slavery to sin. This ultimately is mankind's greatest need, and the gospel is God's gracious answer to that need. And the message of deliverance of the gospel, right, is not socially or economically bound. It doesn't favor a particular ethnicity. It's not restricted by education. It's not restricted by wealth family connections, religious background, political affiliations, or your circumstances of birth. This message is equally powerful for men and women, for young and for old, right? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what sets men free. What does it mean to call upon the Lord? What does it mean to call upon the Lord? It begins by acknowledging your sin and your need for salvation. It probably goes something like this. This world is really messed up. It is broken and it is twisted. And I am really messed up. I am broken and I am twisted as well. I don't do what I know I ought to do and I, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. And, and I think these thoughts, and if you knew the thoughts I thought or the words I say, 
or the things I do and don't do. And I know they're wrong. And yet I do them anyway. And, and I've tried to stop, but, but I can't stop. It happens again. Because I've recognized that there's something deep down inside me that is really, really broken. Really, really defiled. And I deserve to be punished. I know it. But I also know that the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own Son, came into this world. And I believe that he lived the perfect life that I haven't and can't. And he did it on my behalf. And I also know and I also believe that he, that he died to pay the price for my sin that I cannot pay. And that he rose from the dead on the third day to demonstrate that, that he conquered death and sin. And it vindicates all that he said about who he is and, and what he came to do and his very power over life, death, and sin. I also know and believe that he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, rising from the dead on the third day. And I know that he sits at the right hand of God, interceding on behalf of his people that I'm not alone. I believe that. But I got to personalize that. I can't just believe it's true in an objective, third party, it's out there kind of way. I need to recognize that he did it for me. That he bore my sin. That he died in my place. That he rose for my justification. That he intercedes for me. If I will call out in faith upon God to count my sin to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness to me, if I will say, save me, For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. See, beloved, physical slavery is an awful thing. Praise God that we don't know it. Praise God that, that we don't Fear it. But physical slavery, bad as it is, wicked as it is, pales in comparison to the true slavery of sin. 
And what the New Testament would say to you is, yes, you may spend the rest of your life in bondage physically, but Christ has set you free. And you better believe that that message went ripped across the Roman Empire in which a third of the population of the big cities were slaves. And Christianity sprang to life. And if you're, if you're that slave of sin here this morning, and you may well be, you might have a six-figure bank account. You might be living in a big, gigantic house. All the possessions that the world could offer. And yet you are very much a slave. Christ will set you free. Christ will set you free. Call out to him. Let's pray. The Son will set you free, you will be free indeed, Jesus said. Oh, Father, how we thank you that Christ has set us free and that there were no preconditions with regard to our economic or social or educational or parental achievements or inheritances. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter our, our IQ. It, it doesn't matter if we're young or we're old. It doesn't matter if we're male or female. None of these things. What mattered was did we understand the predicament we were in? Did we understand what Christ has done and did we call out in faith? Oh, Lord, thank you for flooding our hearts with faith. We pray now for those persons here this morning who have yet to call out to Christ. Maybe a young person here this morning who, who is coming to the realization that deep down inside them something's seriously wrong. being raised in a Christian home, they, they know the truth, and yet their heart is desperately wicked, and they know it. Oh, Lord, may you cause them even now to flee to Christ that he would set them free. Maybe it's an older person, Father, here with us this morning who has lived a, an upstanding moral life, who's a pillar of the community, whose friends and family would say, there goes a good man. And yet deep down inside, he knows he's not good. That if people really knew the thoughts that go through his mind, if they really knew what motivates his heart, they would recoil in horror. Oh, Lord, even in his older years, May you open his eyes to the truth of Christ.
then he might flee to the cross. For that mother who has laid down her life for her children, she has poured herself into her family. And yet, at night in bed as she lays there, she realizes this is not enough, that something's really wrong. Oh, Lord, open her eyes to see Christ. Have mercy on us, oh God. For Jesus' sake, who died to set us free. Amen. Again, beloved, as I said to you last week, I want to talk to you. If, you. if you are wrestling, I want to talk with you. I don't want to twist your arm. I'm not here. I'm not selling a used car. I'm here to talk to you about the state of your soul. Go in peace.